Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. I'm Chad Almy. I'm on our admin team, uh, and uh, I preach sometimes when we're giving David a break. Okay, so we are going through the lectionary readings for Advent, and this is the second Sunday. Um, we'll put up behind me all of the readings uh, that you can take advantage of. We're going to preach through Isaiah over these four weeks, and uh, today we're going to do Isaiah 11, 1 through 10, that uh, Trenton Kelsey read when lighting the candles. So I think before we jump into the verses, because you could probably tell there's a lot there, and I want to go through it slowly, so we try to get all that we can out of it. I think we actually need a little bit of historical context for what's going on when Isaiah uh, would have written this book and, and made this prophecy uh, to, to, to the kingdom of Judah. So Isaiah comes along about 300 years after uh, the Israelites asked God and he gave them a, a, an earthly king. So there's a, a really fascinating chapter and dialogue in 1 Samuel 8 between God and Samuel where the people have come to Samuel and asked for a king. Samuel doesn't really like it. It's unclear. It may be some self-interest there because he and his sons are kind of the head judges. But uh, nonetheless, he, he, he doesn't want this to happen. And there are good reasons also uh, for, for um, why not from a, from a spiritual sense. But God pushes and explains, no, we're going we're gonna to let this happen. They're going to replace me with an earthly king, uh, but that's what they want, and so that's what we'll give them. And, and God then tells Samuel, and Samuel warns the people of, of what's going to happen, that they're going to toil under this earthly king, and that, uh, that the reason they want it, right, is they want uh, to have a king like the other nations. They want a king that will lead them in conquest and battle and, um, and, and gain power and, and um, you know, political leverage and advantage and wealth, uh, but... but God tells them at the time, look, it's, it's not going to work out as well as you think, and, and you're replacing me with this king, and you're going to essentially toil under this king, and it's not going to go well for you. Well, 300 years later, that's happened. It's not gone well for them. So it didn't take them but two kings, David and Solomon, to split apart as a kingdom. So right after Solomon died and his son Rehoboam was king, the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes, actually split off from the two southern tribes, and you had two kingdoms, so the northern kingdom of Israel and then the southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom, it, it really went sideways for. They uh, had not just bad king, but usually evil king after evil king uh, that, that uh, the people really suffered under. And the southern kingdom was a bit of a mixed bag. They had some godly kings, good kings, and some bad kings, but uh, they were, they had become more and more concerned with sort of the things of the world and, and maintaining and, and ruling a kingdom than with the things of God. And so Isaiah comes along and things are getting rough. So the Assyrians, which at that time were probably the most powerful empire that the ancient Near East had known, were really hitting their stride uh, and, and sort of flexing their military muscles all over the region, conquering kingdom after kingdom. They were one of the first empires to have a professional military, so their soldiers uh, were paid to be soldiers and were trained year-round to do that, and that, that was new in the ancient Near East. 
They also engaged in a style of warfare that they're still famous for. Uh, they, they perhaps were the most brutal warriors and army in the history of the world, definitely one of them, and just had uh, insane torture tactics. And, and there was a method to it, right? They thought that if uh, they could be well-known enough for how brutal and how gruesome they were to people that just didn't bend the knee and sort of open the doors to, to their kingdom and their cities to, to be ruled and pay tribute, they made an example of them. And it's, you know, the, the worst things you can imagine, you know, flaying people alive and beheading and putting the heads on stakes. It all was done to demonstrate their power and to warn people not to, not to go against them. They'd stretch the skins that they'd flayed and cover the walls of the, the cities that they conquered. I mean, just, just crazy stuff. Well, the Israelites would have known all that, right? Uh, because they were notorious in the region and they were sort of at the gates. They'd had a relationship with the Assyrians where uh, they'd been paying tribute on and off and getting help on and off with uh, different battles they were fighting. And, and now it's looking like they've made an enemy of the Assyrians. And in fact, during Isaiah's lifetime, in the 40 plus years that, that he was a prophet, the northern kingdom was conquered uh, by the Assyrians, the 10 northern tribes, and were spread out all over the Assyrian empire and, and really were no more. Uh, after uh, they were conquered in 722 BC, those, those 10 tribes never rejoined uh, the, the, the kingdom of Judah and are still the, the 10 missing tribes to, to this day with all kinds of interesting and crazy theories about what happened to them. But, but basically, they were, they were destroyed and, and were no more. So then we've got the kingdom of Judah, which is where Jerusalem is and which is where uh, Isaiah is, is the prophet and is talking to the kings of Judah. And he's warning them both about the Assyrians and an empire that really hasn't hit their stride yet, but that will about 100 years later end up conquer, conquering the Assyrians, the Babylonians. And in fact, in 586 BC, the Babylonians conquer the kingdom of Judah and destroy the temple and exile a lot of the Jews, the, the, the uh, members of the kingdom of Judah, Judah to Babylon. So all of this is starting to happen. And again, for the northern 10 tribes, does happen during Isaiah's lifetime. So there are storm clouds everywhere. It is a dark time. There is fear and for good reason for the Israelites and the people of Judah. And so it's, it's, it's with that context that we look at chapter 11, verse 1 through 10, which are a prophecy about a Messiah to come. Because if any people in human history needed a savior, it was the Jews right now in this instance. And so let's dig in and we'll, we'll kind of read a verse or two and talk about it and work our way through it. So starting in chapter 11, verse 1, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. So here, Isaiah is appealing to the promise of the Davidic kingdom that all of, of the Israelites would have been familiar with. Right? They all knew that God, when he'd anointed David as king through Samuel and promised to continue his line all the way through the Messiah, that this was supposed to bring great prosperity and abundance to the Israelites. And so if you think of it as what is often a, a, a biblical symbol for prosperity and for life, a huge blossoming tree, 
right, that uh, gives the people shade and has abundant fruit growing from it. Uh, that, that's sort of the picture of the Davidic kingdom that uh, the Jews would have celebrated and had. Well, here, Isaiah talks about it being a stump. And I, I don't think it's a coincidence that he says stump of Jesse instead of stump of David, right? It's been cut so low, it's been uh, dealt such severe blows by the Assyrians and then will be by the Babylonians that it's almost as though that Davidic kingdom, that promise never existed, right? The temple's been destroyed. The people have been exiled. The 10 northern tribes will really never, never be heard from again. So it is kind of shorn to the base. Think of a stump, right? You see where a beautiful forest once was, come in and clear cut it down to the stump. You're thinking it's done, it's gone. But Isaiah says, in giving them hope, a shoot will come up, right? A tiny instrument of growth is going to come up from that stump of Jesse. And it will bear fruit again. All right, we'll pick up in verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So now... Isaiah is describing the Messiah. And this is where it probably started to get confusing for the Jews if they were paying attention. And I think would have been confusing for all of us in their situation too, where they have these enemies at the gates. It's an existential threat. And they're thinking, if they recognize this as a prophecy for the Messiah, what do they want? What do they think they need in the moment? They need strength. They need might, they need military prowess. They need a warrior, right? A warrior king who's going to rescue them from these very real earthly threats that they face. Yet, what are the words that Isaiah uses to describe the Messiah? Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, of counsel, power, knowledge, and fear of the Lord. Not exactly probably what they were thinking or hoping for. Let's keep going. Verse 3, And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. So in verse 3, this Messiah kind of isn't going to play by the rules that the earth works by, right? He's not going to judge by what he sees in front of him or what he hears. There's sort of a deeper righteousness that he's concerned with. And it, and it seems he, he's going to favor the poor and the needy. Well, that would have been completely countercultural, almost unimaginable to the entire ancient Near East, but to the, to the Jews as well, right? Because at the time, might made right. You were as good as your king was strong and powerful. And the poor weren't to be taken care of or to, to have a concern about. The poor were there to serve the king and the other lords. They were expendable. That, that was the logic of the time. So this also would have been 
really confusing uh, for them to hear in, in context of talking about the Messiah. Continuing in verse four, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. So again, probably not exactly what they wanted to hear. It's not, Isaiah's not saying he's going to come and slay all your enemies with an actual sword or spear or axe. It's saying he's going to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Right? Alluding to this Messiah who's coming is going to do his work with his words, not with military might or physical dominance. So, again, imagine if you're sitting in the kingdom of Judah right now and you, what turns out to be rightly perceived that you're in real trouble and you hear this, you're probably not going to be comforted by it, right? You're going to be thinking, hey, these guys are about to redecorate with our skin, right? And all this stuff that you're talking about wisdom and counsel and knowledge and fear of the Lord, you know, that and a dollar is going to get us a Sunday paper. Like, we're in real trouble here, God. What is going on? And so why wouldn't God have given them what they wanted? Why wouldn't God have given them this warrior king that they assumed was going to fulfill the prophecy of David in that line? Well, I think it's because God knew that if he gave that to them, he would rob them of himself. That if he allowed them to put all their faith and their hope and their trust in an earthly king who would then conquer all the enemies and give them everything they wanted and make them a mighty and rich nation, that they would worship that king or themselves and their military prowess, and they wouldn't worship God. And I think Paul understood this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 9. And this is after Paul has pleaded with God to take this affliction from him, right? And three times, and, and God said no. And he says, Paul says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul understood that God is most a part of his life and he's able to leverage all the benefits of that when he feels the need most, right? In his weakness, in his desperation, when there's no other choice, and he turns to God, that's the position that God can use us most in. That's the position that God can connect with us most in. And that a lot of times, unfortunately, when everything's going really well, and we're sort of using our own means to 
get the things that we want and do the things that we want and be the people that we want, it can create separation from God because we start to trust in ourselves or in the money or in the relationship or in the status, whatever it is, more than God. And there are going to be times that we face insurmountable darkness. It hopefully won't look exactly like it did for the, the Jews in 720 BC. But there are things going on in this church right now with folks that are earth shattering, that are world altering, that are really, really hard and that they can't see a lot of hope through, that we recognize our need for a savior. And God could and sometimes does come in and take away the circumstances that we're going through, but a lot of times he doesn't. And He is there. He is working, just like he was for the Israelites in the 720 and in 586. And for hundreds of years, it got worse before it got better. Generations died in exile. But what was God doing that time? He was working to save them in his way, in the only way that would ultimately work, because it was the only way that would draw his people to him. And that's through sacrifice, ultimately death on the cross, service. What are all those things? They're love. It wasn't through conquest and through making sure that every problem and enemy that the Jews had would be conquered It was so that he was going to turn the world on its head, change the way we thought about salvation, about him even, through love. Now, let's unpack the idea of love a little bit. So John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. It's the ultimate act of love. There's never been a greater act of love in human history than Jesus' death on the cross. I think though sometimes we even get mixed up with love. You know, in in our culture, we, we don't have as much of what existed in the ancient Near East in 8th century BC where everyone believed that might made right and There was no such thing as human rights. All of that developed later because of Jesus' sacrifice, because of God choosing to save the world this way. But in our time right now, we all uphold love and we all think about love's ability to give us hope, to bring us peace, to save us. But a lot of times we even pervert that. We even mess that up. Because a lot of times we think about, I think about romantic love, right? 
love that ultimately is self-serving. And, and this is the holidays, it's the Christmas season, so what better example, illustration of that than Hallmark movies? And <laughs> if any of you don't have a father-in-law who you used to be able to escape uh, sort of the craziness of family holiday stuff into the side room and watch sports with, who in his old age has now become more fond of Hallmark movies than of football <laughs> games. Let me give you a rundown of, of sort of the, the basic plot that I think they more or less all follow. But person, through various set of life circumstances, finds themselves in evergreen Vermont. <laughs> and... Over time and going about their day meets uh, a, a seemingly uh, kind of homely person at first that they, of course, later discover to be unbelievably beautiful when that person just takes their glasses off or puts their hair down, because how could you have possibly seen it before they did that, right? <laughs> um, and that, that all, and, and then, you know, their, their life's great. There might be a little bit of conflict in the way, but it, it kind of solves whatever they were searching for, whatever issues they had, and they sort of ride off into the sunset. And that, you know, sounds f crazy and funny, and it is. But it's also not that far off from what we believe a lot of times, right, about what romantic love or, or other relationships are going to do for us with friends, with our parents, with our kids, right? We think that... <laughs> If we find that right person, that right relationship, they're going to always say the right thing. They're going to always think about us. They're going to always respond to us in the right ways. They're going to always do the right thing at exactly the right time. They're going to be perfect. And that's just a really selfish perspective, right? That's a really self-consumed perspective on what love should look like. And more than that, it's the exact opposite of what God says love is in the Bible. It's not service. It's not sacrifice. It's definitely not dying for someone else. There's not as many movies made about that. And so when we talk about love, because Christmas and the coming of the Messiah in the person of Jesus, and then ultimately his sacrifice on the cross is the greatest act of love the world has ever seen, but we have to understand love in a biblical sense. We have to understand that it's sacrifice, that it's putting others in front of yourself. And that's what God's done for us. Okay. We've now got to transition to verses six through eight, and we're going to come back around to this and try to tie it together in the end, but there is not a great transition to verses six through eight. I thought about it a lot. I tried different things. None of it worked, so I'm just calling out the transition. Um, it, it reminds me of uh, when I was uh, first out of law school, first job, and uh, this partner I was working for, a law had just been passed in California that was going to affect one of our most important clients pretty significantly, and he was going to present on it and to, to uh, basically teach the clients about the law and its impacts on, on their business. And so <clears throat> he'd asked me to sort of break the law down and create a PowerPoint that would help him to do that. And so, you know, I was excited about it, one of the first assignments, and I'm thinking, I'm, you know, I'm going to 
do this my own way. I'm going to make it entertaining, right? I'm not going to do what everyone in you know, law firms do in some boring recitation of the law, right? I had a better idea. And so as uh, we got through sort of the, the obvious parts of the law that were straightforward, it got to a place where there's some really crazy stuff that the law was trying to do, which if you know anything about California laws is often the case. And <laughs> to transition, I had one slide that I put up and it was a picture of Charlton Heston from the Planet of the Apes movie kissing the female ape. And the caption underneath was, and then it gets weird. <laughs> and, and that was going to be my transition to talking about the other parts of the law. Um, I gave the deck to the partner about lunchtime the day before he was going to give it. He got his feedback to me by about 4 o'clock, and needless to say, it was a long night for me, and uh, that slide did not get used. So <laughs> I thought about kind of redemption of that slide, actually putting the slide up, <laughs> but, but I, I figured after the Borat quote last time, I needed to tone it down. So, <laughs> All right, so transition. We are going back now to... Six through eight. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra. And the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. So right, that's a hard turn from talking about wisdom and knowledge and fear of the Lord to that. And so at first, it kind of hits you and, and it's a little disorienting as to exactly what's going on and how it fits into this context. But let's read verses 9 and 10. And I think they give shed light on 6 through 8 and, and what Isaiah is doing here. So verse 9, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. Okay, so here I think we a little more clearly see we're talking about the new Jerusalem. We're talking about heaven in the future after Jesus comes back and establishes his reign on earth. Right In that day, the root of Jesse, so the Messiah, Jesus, will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. That brings in all the imagery of revelation and of what's to come. Right? David talked last week about how we're in this already but not yet period where Jesus has come and died on the cross, and we have his Holy Spirit, but we are not yet in the reign of his kingdom that will last forever, where death and all the other consequences of sin will be taken forever from us and from this world. And so if we're talking about that, then this six through eight makes a little more sense, right? All of these things can only happen with a wolf lying down with a lamb, a leopard with a goat, a kid putting his hand in the viper's nest if there is no death, if there is no pain, if there is no suffering, right? In, in Genesis 1, God was very explicit about giving both man and beast just the fruit of, of, of trees and vegetation to eat, not other meat, other animals or people. And so when death is gone again, when we're returned to what Eden was like, 
a lion and a lamb can lay together because there's no, or excuse me, a wolf and lamb can lay together. There's no risk that the wolf's going to eat the lamb. There's no risk that the viper's going to strike the child because all of those things are gone. And so Isaiah here is pointing towards what we're eventually going to get to because of the Messiah. And I think that's something, no matter how bad things get here and no matter how much we have to suffer from the consequences of sin and death and mourning, that we always can look forward to is what it will be like in the life to come. But we are here, right? We're in the already, but not yet. So what does it mean for us? What does the fact that God gave us Jesus mean for right now? You know, let's look at the verse before John 15, 13. So John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 12, right preceding this says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Right? That's what God's calling us to. That's what sending Jesus instead of an earthly king that would slaughter all the enemies and establish a political state that would rule. That's what it means that he sent a servant king to die for us is so that as we have his spirit, we can also take part in that sort of love, that sort of service to others that doesn't, as that earthly king might distract us from God, in fact, it brings us to him, right? We're part of his story. We're part of perpetuating what he wants for this earth and for his people. I think it also helps us here deal with all that we deal with. Right, Paul said in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, I've learned the secret to being content in all situations, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And we have that strength here. We have the Holy Spirit in the already, but not yet. You know, it's easy to look at the disciples and the Israelites in the time of Isaiah and sort of cast dispersions and say, how did they miss it? How did they, they had Isaiah right in front of them and then even more the disciples had Jesus right in front of them and they, they didn't understand. They didn't understand that Jesus was coming to die for them, that Jesus was coming to serve and to sacrifice. Even the disciples thought that Jesus was going to destroy and triumph over the Roman Empire, that he was gonna be a warrior king. How could that be when Jesus was teaching? How'd they miss it? But before we blame, I think we have to think about all the ways that we do the same now when we have his spirit, that we still take whatever it is that we're really looking to for our hope and our peace and our joy for our salvation, whether it's that relationship, money, the job, status, what that person thinks of me, what this person thinks of me. God's been saving us from ourselves since Genesis chapter three. He's been pulling us back from our impulse to want to believe in earthly kingdoms, to want to believe in ourselves 
and each other to be our salvation. And the greatest act of doing that, the greatest act of love is Jesus. Is the love that God showed us by giving his son to die for us. And I want to close here with a passage that is typically used at weddings, but I think it applies just as powerfully to Christmas and to what God did for us. And I hope that you'll think about this passage as we go through Advent season and really try to capture and touch what it is that it means. So 1 Corinthians 13, and we'll start in verse 8. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we, we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Love never fails. It's ultimately going to save us. And right now, it can give us the peace and the joy and the hope that we want and that we need. You know, I think a lot of Christmas stuff, last thought, a lot of, a lot of Christmas stuff and imagery isn't particularly helpful at reminding us of Jesus. But one thing that, that I really think is, and in preparing for this sermon, I've just been thinking about it over and over, and it's been a real gift to me, so I offer it to you. When you're driving home after work, it's pitch black dark, right? The darkness is oppressive. It's overpowering. And you see through a window the lights on a Christmas tree or the lights that someone's put up on their house. I think it's a great metaphor for what God did for us through Jesus. He didn't overpower the darkness today. He will one day. He didn't make it perpetually sunlight. We still deal with the consequences of sin and death. But he gave us light to move towards and to take hope from and to get some peace and joy from. That's Jesus. He's the light that is piercing the darkness that's the promise of the full light to come. All right, let me pray and then we'll do some ministry time. God, thank you for today, for this morning, for your willingness to encounter each of us with your spirit and not just when we step foot in these walls and not just during Advent, but it is an opportunity, God, that as we get ready to celebrate the coming of your son, the coming of our salvation in a way that still is hard for us to fully understand. Lord, come. 
Let us fill that powerfully this year, this season, every day. Give us those reminders every day. Thank you, Lord, for the hope and love and peace that came from the sacrifice your son made on the cross for us. We love you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 